Amen. Hey, this morning we're going to be in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 7 through 8. If you want to begin to make your way there, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 7 through 8. If you don't have a Bible, you can find one in the back of the row in front of you. Uh, the pew in front of you, we'd love for that to be a gift from us to you. If you're not familiar with how to use that, you can find a table of contents at the front of the Bible. It's going to let you know where to locate the book of 1 Thessalonians in the New Testament. And then as we make our way through today, we're going to be in some different places. Just know that the large numbers are chapters and the small numbers are verses. I want to start with uh, what is taken from, it's really, and so you have the Westminster Catechism, then you have the shorter, and then Spurgeon takes it and he makes it into something really helpful for parents. And so if you're not familiar with what a catechism is, it's just a series of questions and answers. And so it's training your children in righteousness. It's training your kids to know certain things about God, to know certain things about his church, his word, so that when they grow up, they have this repository of knowledge. They have a, a deposit on hand that they can draw from when they encounter various things. How is God? How does God operate? What does this word tell us? Who is he and how is he? And so let's just look at uh, two or three, actually four questions. And so the first question from the shorter catechism is, who made you? And what might you suppose the answer is? God. Thank you, uh, some of the children in the room. Listen, if you don't know the answer, this is a bad time to guess, right? Uh, you're you're going to embarrass yourself, and the people around you will be sorry for you. Perhaps you can solicit some kind of, well, let's just stop there. So what else did God make? Everything. Yeah, God made all things. Now, why did God make you in all things? For his glory. Yeah, I heard that for he loves us, and certainly that's true, but God made you in all things for his own glory. Glory. And check this out. How can you glorify God? Thank you, Ben. Yes, by loving him and doing what he commands. And so, like, this is the answer. This is what we're looking for. And this is the purpose for which we are created. We are created to love the Lord our God and to do all that he commands. And in doing those things, we bring glory and honor to his name. Let me pray for us and pray for our time that that would be true of us. That we would glorify the Lord God. That we would love him and do all that he commands. Father, we come before you again. God, this morning I pray that our hearts would be burdened indeed. To do all that you have commanded. To be all that you have created us to be. You have created us to glorify you. And, and we can only glorify you not by seeking to live out our own will, our own desires, our own best life. We can only glorify you by loving you and doing what you command. And your commands are recorded in your word. And we are governed as people who live lives in submission to you. We are governed by your spirit that indwells us. And so, God, I pray that your spirit of governance would be in our hearts right now, that you would guide us into conviction, that in conviction that we would meet with you, and that you would do a work in our hearts. God, we want to meet with you this morning as Joel prayed at the beginning of the service. We dedicate this time to you. We invite your spirit into this place that we would find communion with you this morning. 
And we prayed that the same thing would be true in the many churches of our community, that they would see fabulous revival break out as men and women turn their hearts back to you, seeking to live lives that glorify, that honor you and all that they do. God, we want to pray globally this morning for the various conflicts going on across the world. God, our hearts are especially with Ukraine today. God, we pray for peace. We pray for men and women to stand for justice. We pray for the protection of the innocents. And we pray that your church would stand in the gap to minister to those in danger, to minister to those in need. God, we pray for our own country. God, many of us have read the reports of this draft opinion coming from Alito. And God, we pray that this would be evidence of good things for the future. God, that we would begin to see the unraveling, the undoing of abortion in this country. But God, I pray that we would not see this as an end goal, but God, that we would see this as yet another step of what it looks like to have a pro-life ethic that invades all that we are. God, that we would be pro-life all the way from conception through life's natural end, that we would be there, as James writes, to engage in pure and undefiled religion, to care for orphans and widows in their distress. And so, God, we pray for that. We pray for those who disagree with us. We pray that their hearts would be changed, that you would make them alive, that you would confront them with the radical truth of the gospel, that in mercy and grace you would show them a picture of your son Jesus who came, who lived, who died on their behalf, even as they disbelieved. God, that's who we are this morning. That's the testimony of our lives. A group of people who didn't have it all together, who didn't have it all figured out, but a group of people who recognized that you did and you sent your son Jesus to take upon himself the penalty and the punishment for our sin and death. So God, I pray this morning that we would fall more in love with Jesus. God, I pray this morning that we would be more dependent upon Jesus and that you would lead us to walk that out and humble submission to your spirit in all things. And it's in Christ's name we do pray. Amen. Look at 1 Thessalonians 4. We're just going to be in two verses this morning. Now, as Paul picks this up, really he's in some sense wrapping up the section of text that he started in verse 3. And so if you missed last week, you can go back and listen to it, or you can just read. But look what he writes in verse 7 and 8. He says, for God has not called us for impurity, but in holiness. Bless you. Therefore, whoever disregards this, disregards not man, but God, who gives us his Holy Spirit to you. So in this, we begin to have a sense of what our purpose, the very reason that you are created. You're created. Look what he says back here. Look simply what he says in verse 7. For holiness, not for impurity. So as we come into this, we have this fascinating understanding that if you go back to chapter 4 and verse 3, he spoke of it differently. He says this is the will of God, but here in this section he speaks of it as the call of God. It's the call of God on your life. We recognize the call of God operating really in two realms. So first and foremost, the call of God hits us at the point of calling us unto himself and that in salvation. So God is calling you, wooing you, attracting you to himself, and he's doing that in salvation. Look at back at chapter 2 and verse 12 in, in the same book. 
Paul wrote and he says, We encouraged, we exhorted each one of you and encouraged you that and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God. And who is God? He is the one who calls you into his own kingdom and unto his own glory. So God has done something. He's effected some change. He has called you into himself. He's called you into an experience of his glory. He has called you from darkness and and into light. He has awakened your heart. He has enlivened your spirit. God has radically transformed and changed you. And he's only ever accomplished this by the power of his spirit. Now in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 verses 13 and 14, speaking of this same call, this is how he says it. He says, we ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, beloved by the Lord, because God chose you as the first fruits to be saved through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. Listen to what he says, to this you were called. You were called through our gospel so that you might obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. So before God ever commissions and sends you out to be something, he makes you that, which he calls you to be. Do you recognize this? And that God has called you into salvation. God, working before the foundation of the earth, in some sense, had your salvation in mind as an eventuality and as the, the first fruits he describes here of salvation. And so what does this do? What does this produce in your heart? What does this call you to? It should not be a sense of just kind of overwhelming foreboding of, oh my goodness, I can't believe he did this. It's such a terrific amount of responsibility. I don't know how to be in charge of this. I don't know what to do with this. But recognize his response in the middle of these things is that you would hear this and you would say, I'm in love. I'm terrifically cared for and adored. He saved me. That God, in all of your foibles, in all of your filth, has called you from filth into faithfulness. God has called you into salvation. And he says he's done this for something radically specific. It is not for impurity, but for holiness. Do you remember what he said back in verse 3? He's called you, or it's the will of God for your life, your sanctification. It's the same word used differently. The plan and purpose of the creator God, the sovereign God of the whole universe, the one who holds the sun in its place, the one that holds the stars and the moons, the one that spoke life into existence, gives you breath in your lungs, this creator God, his desire for you and what you should be like over the course of your life is holy. It's that simple. And so he calls you into this experience of holiness. And all the while, as we spoke about last week, we see that the God of this age, Satan himself, is calling you into licentiousness. He's calling you into an experience of hedonism. He's calling you plainly into sin. And in sin and enjoyment. Satan comes to you and he's like, check this out. Holiness is a complete drag. It's pretty much the worst thing ever. Can we just, can we just be honest about this, Satan says? Holiness is really terrible. It just seems awfully repressive. But what about this? What if holiness isn't necessarily what he called you to? Because that's not necessarily achievable for you. But what he, in fact, has called you to is goodness. And that's great. You can be good. In fact, I've heard people say, you're a pretty good old boy. You're a pretty good old girl. Happy Mother's Day. And, and, and emphasis on the old, some of you. I'm just saying. That's Satan speaking there. Satan wants us to settle for goodness. God in his wisdom 
recognizes that we are called to holiness. And we should settle for nothing less. Look at what Peter writes in 1 Peter 1. It begins to make sense within the mind of God how this is operating within the heart of his people. 1 Peter 1, 14 through 16, he says, As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. So you recognize what he's saying there? There is a way of being which was formerly true of you prior to coming to faith in Jesus. There is your story before you came to know Jesus. There is a way of being. There is a reality of who you were. And that reality calls, it beckons, it woos, and it wants to be true of you all the way. It wants to be true of you now, even now as you sit here. It says, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. On what does Peter base the calling of our holiness? Upon God's holiness. Upon God's holiness. Quoting from uh, Leviticus 11.44, he says, You shall be holy, for I am holy. Do you see the goodness in this? That the call that God has upon our lives to live holy is predicated upon his character, not our past story. It's predicated, it's set up, it's designed to be, to look, to reflect his character, not our potential. Now there are things in life that we recognize we have some givenness to, some natural aptitude towards and, and for those of us who are musically inclined, perhaps it's because you had a natural aptitude, some proclivity, some goodness in you. It just naturally came. You sat down at the keys, and it was like it was Mozart coming out. I sit down at the keys, and it's like really bad chopsticks. And so there, there's this thing within us, in our minds, in which we naturally operate, where we come to understand that there are things we're naturally good at. None of us are naturally good at holiness. None of us are bent towards holiness. What does he say? The enemy comes in and says, yeah, but you're pretty good. Yeah, but have you seen the people around you? Have you seen your brother? Have you seen your sister? Have you seen your cousin? Have you seen your neighbor? Have you heard the way that people speak? Have you witnessed things on television? Have you experienced what it is to be assailed by the, by the, by the sin of this world? Well, that's not true of you. And he's puffing us up. He's asking us to be satisfied in goodness. He's asking us to be satisfied in the opinions of the people of this world. But what is Peter saying? Peter's saying, be holy if the Lord your God is holy. So we come to this sense and this understanding that it's the character of God we're supposed to emulate. And he has called us, he has saved us to this, and in saving us to this by his Holy Spirit, he has empowered us to this, and he calls us to walk this out. He calls us to walk this out. And so maybe even as you're sitting here today, what you're thinking about and what you're reflecting on is what this last week, what this last month, what this last quarter, what this last season, what your life in total has looked like. And you say, and if I'm going to be honest, my life has not looked like holiness. You see, I have this vague conception of holiness, and it's just kind of otherly. But there's no part of that reality that fits in me. There's no part of that description that is true of me. And so I find myself not pursuing it and not going after it. Christian, if 
The effort of your life is not the pursuit of holiness. What Paul gives us next is a stark warning that should be terrifying to us. And an encouragement to pursue this all the more. Look at what he writes. He says, therefore, whoever disregards this disregards not man, but God. Whoever disregards this. Now, the ESV is seeking to do us a favor here, and so what it does is it it inserts the word this so we can have something to to attach it to. But what we find within the Greek is this understanding that what he writes is he essentially says, the disregarding one disregards not man but God. The disregarding one. The one who by your very character are one who perpetually rejects not man but God. So how does this work? What we begin to see, what we begin to see, and what we begin to observe is that the way that it operates is that Satan comes in and he tempts you to disengage. He tempts you to have a diminishing intensity of the pursuit of holiness. He tempts you in some way that leads you to focus on something else outside the heart of God and the pursuit of his heart and his holiness. And then in so doing, And in so taking away the intensity of your life and leaning in towards holiness, he slightly skips over to this and you begin to pursue something else entirely. And in the pursuit of this, he's leading you further and further and further and further away from the heart of God and to where it doesn't even look like you're pursuing goodness anymore. It solely looks like you're pursuing self-satisfaction. And what is true of you in the middle of this is that you have taken on the name rejecter. You have taken on the name and the characteristic of one who rejects, one who disregards. Do you have a sense of the devastation therein? Some of us, we know this story all too well. We know this reality all too well. We know what it is to be a disappointment to our family. We know what it is to be a disappointment to our children. We know what it is to be a disappointment to our friends. We know what it is to say within our hearts our hidden name of rejecter. And to know that the truth of that stings and it hurts and it wounds. And we wonder... You see, I hear that God has called me to holiness, but I find in my life the pursuit of impurity, which gives me the name disregarder. Can there be another name for me? Can there be another name for me? The father of lies. Satan speaking into your heart, speaking into your failure, speaking into the very nature and the core of who you see yourself as, speaking into all these things, we were reminded that according to Jesus' word in John 8, 44, Satan is a murderer from the beginning, that he does not stand in truth because there is no truth in him. There is no truth in him. And When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. Andrew Murray, South African, reflecting on this, said this in terms of our pursuit back to the Lord. He says, nevertheless, it is just this, that many who are seeking grace do not understand 
They imagine that the source of a change of attitude in their hearts is God allowing himself to be persuaded to show them favor. They suppose that whenever they earnestly repent and learn to pray with much penitence and love and deep conviction, God will then manifest his grace toward them. And therefore, they are always taking great pains to make themselves as pious and as earnest as they possibly can in the presence of God. They think that in this way they will receive light and comfort. He says, no, my friend, this is not God's way. God desires nothing from you but that you should be really an acknowledgement of your sin and cast yourself down before him as a guilty sinner. Then you will certainly and speedily receive his grace. It is a transgressor, as one who is ungodly as you are to come. To those who come this way, forgiveness and life will certainly be given. You see, the enemy comes to us in the middle of these things, and he says, be broken, be wretched, be pitiable. Take upon yourself some form of piousness. Take upon yourself some claim. Do something great to reestablish yourself within the heart of God. And that as you do this, and as you feel better about yourself, because you really have in some sense moved away from your sin, you begin to believe the lie that God is now more favorably discharged towards you. Do you hear the lie then? Do you hear the lie there? You have been a rejecter. You have been a disregarder. And what you have taken upon yourself is the effort and the energy to reestablish yourself on the heart and the love of God. And Satan says, you can do it just a little bit more. You can do it just a little bit more. You can do it work just a little bit harder. And when you fail, and you will fail, because you can't maintain that effort, Satan comes to you again. He says, all you are is a disregarder. All you are is a rejecter. He brings to verse, he brings to mind Bible verses. He'll tell you, listen, listen, Matt, you know Hebrews 10, 26? For the one who engages in sin deliberately, there belongs no longer an opportunity for forgiveness, a sacrifice, a covering for that sin. He'll remind you of all these verses. He'll twist them, and he is so masterful because he longs to keep you in sin. He longs to keep you from the heart of the Father. But what do we find in this? See, verses 7 and 8, they set up this wonderful split here. So on the one hand, we have you and I, and we are disregarders. And perpetually, this is who we are. And on the other hand, we have God in verse 8, who is the giver of his Holy Spirit to you. And so when we find ourselves in this path, in this direction of disregarding, what he calls us to do isn't to redouble our efforts to return to him. It's to remember, friend, God has given you disregarder. He has given to you rejecter. He has given to you prodigal, his Holy Spirit, to pull, to direct, to force you back in this direction. Look at Romans 8.1. Look at Romans 8.1. Answer the lie of the enemy with the truth of Scripture. Romans 8.1. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. When he tells you, and he will, this is who you are, this is all you'll ever be, what is your response? Jesus, 
What saves you, what calls you back, what holds you steadfast? Jesus and his sacrifice. What does the enemy want you to do? Anything and everything to make you feel like you're moving towards Jesus. And when you feel like you're moving towards Jesus, in reality what the enemy's doing is pulling you further and further and further away because you are not dependent upon his gospel, which is all grace. You're dependent upon your goodness, which is failing and lackluster. And when we hold up our goodness to the light of the gospel, we recognize that in us, all the goodness in us only ever shines through Jesus. Amen? And any goodness which is found in us, and we think it is natural, we think it is given in our own proclivity, we think it is found in our own talents, all that goodness is fallen. All that goodness is failed. All that goodness is filthy rags before the righteousness of God. Can you hear this this morning? Can you recognize you were made for a purpose, and that purpose is his holiness? And when you find yourself errant, when you find yourself backslidden, this is what the Spirit is doing, Romans 8, 14 through 16. He says, for all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons and daughters of God. You did not receive the spirit of slavery, to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. The Spirit of God testifies in the middle of your backsliddenness and it asks you not to do more but to submit to him in all things. Do you hear the voice of the Spirit crying out within you? In the middle of your sin, in the middle of your pride, in the middle of your lust, in the middle of your deceit, in the middle of your slander, in the middle of whatever sin God has placed before you in your heart and the trap you find yourself stuck in now. This is what his spirit says. Abba, Father. Jesus before the throne of God, whispering into the ear of God, they are my child. They are sealed by your spirit. Satan whispering into your other ear, do better. Work harder. Keep it hidden. Keep it secret. Don't let anyone know. His spirit crying out to God. The son crying out into the ear of God. They are your child. They are sealed by my blood. They are held fast by your spirit. Will we reject the lie? Listen, this morning I want us to do three things. We're ending early. I want us to come forward and to pray as a body, and we're going to do three things. We're going to reject the lie. We're going to confess our sin, and we're going to cling to our Savior. So in just a moment, we're going to have an opportunity. I'm going to ask the elders in the room if you'll come up to the front now. Philip, would you come down? Kim, would you come down? Joel, would you come down? Justin? Come and join these men. Would you bow your heads? Would you stand with me as we pray in preparation for God to move in our place, in our hearts? God, you have created and called us into your holiness into a relationship with your son. So God, this morning, 
There are those of us in this place, and what we need to do is to reject the lie of the enemy. He is a father of lies, and every time he speaks, he speaks from his character. So God, I pray for the Christians in this room who are believing the lie that they are a disregarder. And they are believing the lie that they need to do more. God, that this morning that they would surrender to you. That they would be reminded of the sacrifice of your son. That they would be reminded of the seal of your spirit. You give them the spirit constantly. God, there are those of us in this room that what we need to do this this moment in this time is to confess our sin. So God, as we enter into this time of worship, let us be bold to confess our sin to you. And in confessing our sin to you, God, your spirit enables us, you move us in repentance. And so God, I pray that we would confess our sin. And then lastly, God, I pray what would be true of all of us is that we would cling to our Savior. Father, we pray for those who do not know your son, Jesus. They came into this place for a variety of reasons, to please their mom, to be seen, to search out answers for questions. This morning, Father, as they confess their sin to you, their sin of independence, their sin of disbelief, their sin of pursuing goodness, their sin of pursuing anything other than you, God, that you would save them. So I pray this morning that what it would look like for them to cling to the Savior is that they would come forward to pray with one of these men, that they would confess their sin of unbelief, and that they would ask Jesus to save them. So God, would you guide us in this? God, as Caleb begins to play and begins to lead us, God, I pray that you would embolden our hearts that you would lead us from our pews, that you would lead us to the front of this church and you would call us into a time of prayer, that our hearts would be reverent before you, that our lives would be humble before you, that our spirit of independence would be broken before you. God, would you lead us to pray? Pray for ourselves or pray for our country, our neighbors. God, in whatever way that we are in this place at this time, God, would you lead us to pray? So God, guide us in this time.